1: Hello, this is Lily Gorin with the New Books Network, the New Books and Political Science podcast. Today, I'm joined by Esther Dadao and Daniel Connell, who are the editors of Toxic Masculinity, Mapping the Monstrous in Our Heroes. And for those of you who are comic fans, either of the comics themselves or the television film adaptations, this will be particularly interesting to you. This book was published in 2020 by the University Press of Mississippi, um, and I'd like to welcome Esther and Dan to the New Books in Political Science podcast and ask them to tell us each a little bit about themselves and how they came to this fabulous and really interesting project. Hi, Esther. Hi, Dan. Hi. 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 Uh,
2: do you want? Do you want to take it down, or shall yeah,
1: I? Yeah, sure.
3: I'll, okay. I'll go for it. So I suppose a little bit about myself, and then and then how we came to it. But yeah. there'll be crossover on that. So uh, yeah, I am uh, an independent scholar uh, working very much in the realm of the intersection between hypermasculinity and hyperreality, um, but with you know nascent interests around that area, um, and where this uh, project came about. Uh, Esther and I attended a conference called the Superhero Project in Oxford back in ooh, 2016, I think it was, so a lo- long time ago. Um, and basically, it very much was a project born very naturally out, out of that process, uh, so it was quite interesting. There was no call, call for papers or anything, um, just we, we saw a, a book in, in the conference. Uh, and that's where I was born out of. Uh, so yeah, that, that's me in a very brief nutshell.
1: Thanks, Dan. Esther?
2: Yeah. Um, so I was doing my PhD at the time of the conference. And the superhero was kind of one of the big first international ones that I'd done. Um, Because the the Superhero Conference still runs on a yearly basis, although um, I think it's mostly run out of an institution in Germany right now, if that's correct, Dan.
3: Yeah, it is correct, yeah.
2: Yeah, yeah. um, And so I was a PhD student at the time, and I remember um, listening to uh, Dan's paper, um, which became the foundation for his chapter in the book, which is called The Simulacrum of Hypermasculinity in Comic Book Cinema. And I remember being really impressed because there was some overlap into what I was looking into concerning like the physicality of the superhero um and stuff that I talk about in the book my book as well um so I remember having a chat with Dan and we we kind of really hit it off uh really quickly had like a yeah we, we think this 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 toxic masculinity all this stuff and then as the day went on and we were listening to other chapters Dan said to me you know I think if, you, if we look at this panel and that panel and then look at some of the papers there, I think there's like a really good book here that would be a very like organic thing. Um, and I was like, yeah, I think you're right. I think that looks really good. And so Dan suggested like, how about we put something together and approach a few people? And that's kind of how it became a, a thing. Um, so, and it was obviously very exciting for me because I was still a PhD student, hadn't published yet. So I was like, oh, I'm going to do an edited volume. That's so exciting. Um, and yeah, that's kind of how after after years then of, you know, approaching people and doing the proposal and contacting the publisher. And then, so yeah, from 2016 to finally having it published in 2020. So it took, it took a while, but uh, we got there.
3: It was great. Yeah, yeah, we did. We did indeed. And it's
1: a really interesting book. It really does take up the sort of constellation of thinking about masculinity and not essentially the contrast to femininity or, um, you know, sort of other, other groups in contrast to masculinity. It really does focus on this question of masculinity. And that's where I wanted to start sort of start off, because you talk about toxic masculinity, hyper masculinity, hegemonic masculinity, all as forms that we see in comics. Um, and the comic superhero, um, and that also female superheroes are kind of in contrast or in dis- in, in sort of contra- construction with that. So mm-hmm. can you explain what those three different kinds of masculinities are? Obviously, you also talk about hybrid, um, which takes sort of pieces of all of them, and, and what you, how you see those in these superheroes.
2: Um, so I think... Uh, in terms of like all these various masculinities, they're all constantly in dialogue with each other. I think that's really something to keep in mind, that they don't have a straightforward um, causal relationship with each other. They're kind of constantly in dialogue and being renegotiated by our culture as time goes on. Um, But hypermasculinity was a term that first originated in sociology and was used to identify um, four specific types of behaviour that... um, essentially pushed men into very unhealthy behavior. So it was it was to describe a phenomenon where men increasingly took part in risk-taking behavior, especially when they were in a group together, in a way that women don't. Um, and it is all, all about proving the manliness. Um, so it's stuff like, you know, um se- risky sexual behavior, um, but also stuff like not taking necessary safety precautions when doing something dangerous because that's considered to be sissy-like or, you know, yeah, don't be a sissy. Um, you don't need a harness for that. And so it's this this whole, uh, like it, it's kind of like the jokey phenomenon online where it's like, this is why women live longer. That's literally it. That's literally the hyper-masculinity thing where it's like, yeah, men push each other into risk-taking behavior as a way to prove masculinity. And there's other elements um that are part of that as well so like um aggression and uh violence towards women especially and um, so that's kind of hyper masculinity this kind of exaggeration of very masculine traits and it can become very toxic masculinity then as well um, which is then kind of looking specifically at how masculinity is based on a rejection of femininity or any kind of femininity and these End up resulting behaviors that are very toxic to men and their lives. Um, so, like for instance, mental health crisis. Mental health crisis is very high amongst men. Um, the suicide numbers are very high amongst men. And again, these are things we don't talk about because that's not um, considered appropriate. It's not. It's not manly to talk about your feelings, things like that. Um, so, toxic masculinity as a complete avoidant. Of femininity and then hypermasculinity as a hyper-performance of masculinity and those kind of form hegemonic masculinity together um, I don't know if you want to kind of elaborate on that Dan because I've been talking quite a bit now
3: <laughs> <laughs> no I think I think you've evaluated it very well I think probably if you were to draw a Venn diagram there would be massive overlap on those three areas um, probably One thing I would say about toxic masculinity is it's not necessarily those tropic masculine qualities. It's just uh, where masculinity pushes someone to take certain conditions or or ideals or or frameworks and and make them really unhealthy, either in a societal or a personal way. Uh, and, And what Esther touched on is actually a great example, say stoicism, for example, it, it's quite a, a common or accepted or lauded trait in men to be stoic, um, and, and stoicism can be good; it can be positive. But if you're so stoic that you don't let anyone in, and you don't talk about anything, and you you reject everything, that that is really the, the realm of toxic masculinity. Um, hi- Hyper masculinity, as Esther said, is it, quite it's a bit narrower. Uh, I think I would argue um certainly that risk taking element also the intimation of violence the interlinking uh of that's quite key although arguably that's another form of risk taking um uh, and so yeah uh, and and then the only thing i would say about hegemonic masculinity is the the hypermasculine form is presently a part of hegemonic masculinity it it, it is an umbrella over us all Let, let's let's put it in that way um and what we're addressing in terms of when you look at toxic masculinity is in what ways is that hegemonic masculinity affecting society affecting the self um but also what are the different uh lenses of masculinity because we're not all hyper masculine it's not all hyper masculinity there are other forms um, that can be toxic, um, and I think, yeah, that's that's the interconnectivity of those three terms. Uh, it, it's quite a gray area, but hopefully, that's a bit clearer.
1: I, I think that it really helps to sort of lay out that groundwork because this is the framework and also the lens that you are then looking at these superheroes, right? And and you know, there's it's very hard to sort of look at. Um, say Captain America and not think masculine, Uh, (laughs) right? Uh, And and so uh, particularly once he becomes Captain America and the contrast. um, And so you talk about the origin stories and that's, that's also a little bit about how these, these superheroes come into this masculine realm. Um, Can you explain how you sort of saw this thread um in terms of the the comic superhero and these dimensions of masculinity
3: uh, well i think from a comics perspective the the thread is quite straightforward um would, would you tend to agree esther oh yeah uh, on that um, yeah, yeah, yeah and where my chapter and parts of the book look was that specifically my chapter um when comic book adaptations in film and TV made a deliberate attempt to try and replicate what was on the page, um, as though these normal human beings are not normal, Um, the the idealised masculinity, statuesque-like figures, Um, I I think there's quite a clear connection there. Um, And I think... I mean, to be honest with you, it goes back to Joseph Campbell, doesn't it, as well, and and the narratives of the hero. um, I I think you don't have superheroes without that sort of structural framework to come in. Uh, And also our book covers things that aren't comic book adaptations. So, for example, there's a chapter on uh, Harry Potter uh, and Dumbledore. Uh, There's another one on Torchwood. So it's very much looking at the strand of all all those narrative tranches around masculinity that are born very much from a very long time ago, how how do they still permeate? What's changed? What hasn't changed? And also, if we look at it through a modern lens, is is it healthy? Uh, I think my argument would be the answer is no.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think it's very much about... um, So, like, the the link between masculinity the idea of the hero and superpowers themselves like how do superpowers make the superhero and what does that mean for masculinity and how that has translated across various mediums so yeah comic books um and film and tv um and especially like how comic books and comic book adaptations have kind of Taken us back to the '80s, kind of taken us back to the the bodybuilder action hero who is ridiculously muscled. and we're kind of back in that hyper muscled um, sort of televised space, um, because you can't you, you can't see a hero nowadays without them being ridiculously fit. Absolutely, um, and it, it doesn't even matter um, whether or not their powers are meant to be cerebral or telekinetic or you know, whatever, there has to be a shot where the hero takes his shirt off and someone, whether it's the audience or another character, gazes upon him admiringly through the camera, lavishly, longingly, tracing all their muscles. And it's just, I think that for me was like a really interesting phenomenon, Um, especially again through Dan's paper and um, the idea of the simulacra, how it takes us further and further away from the real, what is real, um, it's just that was re- that was really interesting. And I think it kind of in the book, we've tried to kind of trace that and how that is made um, possible in films and TV. And then what that does to female characters, for instance, and then also what that does for the audience um, just to see these things everywhere all the time. Um, and so I think that's also kind of part of that link there of like, what does it mean to be a man, the physicality of it on screen? in the story and what does it mean when that's not there as well
3: a a great example of that um and for me where it sort of started to jump the shark so to speak uh dr strange benedict cumberbatch you know has his shirt off and is ripped he's a surgeon (laughs) surgeon magician wizard (laughs) you know um what's what's the narrative there what's happening um why is a very big question but there we are
2: and and tony stark you know the playboy the philanthropist the scientist he's just in a lab he's not he's not lifting weights as part of his superhero you know regiment he's he's just fit like just naturally because of his masculinity he's just fit that's that's what a real masculinity does for you it makes you buff um so yeah I think that's uh, that that's an interesting part of it as well. Yeah. And so
1: I wanted to ask you about um, you you sort of mentioned this in the introduction, and this re- this is about also what we're thinking about when we think about things like toxic masculinity, is the gender debate is alive and kicking. I think that's the quote, um, and that you sort of come into that sort of saying look, we have, you know, these things going on in real life and politics and so forth that are questions around gender and Me Too movement and, you know, the Access Hollywood tape, shall we say, um, and all of the questions around feminism that have sort of re-established themselves recently. Um, And so... The, the texts themselves, which we're talking about, the films, the television shows and the comic books, but the films and the television shows are the ones that are consumed by the most people. Um, and how is the gender debate reaffirmed or reified in in these sort of questions of masculinity that are projected um, through these superhero stories?
3: Shall, shall I take a stab at that, Esther? Yeah, go on. <laughs> go on, then. <laughs> well, well, so, it, but it, it's a very, very good question. It's not an easy question, but I would argue that the book it is partially a response to the lack of animus in that reification of the, the gender uh, question. Um, and very much, are we sort of mindlessly consuming the, these stereotypes and these, these ideals um, because they're they're packaged up and, and patented in such a way that we just enjoy them and we don't come away and go, why did Benedict Cumberbatch have his shirt off flexing his muscles? You, you know, in, in that film, what's the requirement there? Um, and it's that my greatest concern is of a society that just – willingly but on a certain level unknowingly absorbs that sort of information unquestioningly. Um, I do think there's a certain addressing of it, certainly from a creative sense. You can see in the MCU what they are trying to do uh, with Phase 4, for example, um, with diversification both behind the camera and and in front of the camera. Um, Where I worry on that is sort of what the audience uptake is going to be because they've had such a long period, you know, nearly two decades of absorbing these messages, uh, sometimes even just a subtext. Um, I, I think in academic circles, the conversation is alive, is very strong. Does that permeate in broader society? That's the thing that we need to address.
2: I think I think that's a really good point that like the conversation, who is having it Mm. and where are they having it? So definitely in academia, 100 percent. Fandom as well, I would say, is alive and well. And they do loads of discussions around gender and race as well. Um, And I think that's that's really interesting. And I think that perhaps not at the time that we were writing the book, but perhaps at the time that it was coming out, Certainly, I felt that those conversations were increasingly happening mainstream. Um, so I think the book is is kind of very timely in that sense, because we have been talking about, if, if I can you know, say that in quotation marks, the gender issue, uh, which has been like a polite way to say it, the women's issue, really. And I think increasingly we have been talking about actually masculinity and what does it mean to be a man? And certainly I think when the book came out, that, that's a conversation that was really kicking into high gear, especially with like, say, for instance, Trump's presidency um, and the Me Too movement. There was very much this question of um, the kind of masculinity that people um, idealize, the kind of masculinity that people vote for, especially in these conversations around like Trump's health and Biden's health and strength. Um, So I think it's like the book came out in a very timely fashion at that time. Um, And I think it does say something very interesting About specifically masculinity that we chose to focus on um, because we felt that there was some lacking discussion around masculinity itself because when we talk about gender like I said it's it's really very often that we end up talking about femininity and not gender as a concept or the various different genders that exist Um, so yeah I think I think that's a a conversation that is definitely still alive and well I think as well Um, I would say but I think it's maybe taken a back seat in the last year or so because you know there's been a panini on and everything so <laughs> <laughs> yeah
1: we've all been sitting around not being particularly feminine or masculine during the
2: pandemic <laughs> I'm, I am a genderless blob when I'm home and that's fine <laughs> <laughs> black leggings from here until forever
1: Um, (laughs) and, and so the book itself has three sections that sort of unpack some of these questions about superheroes, the male superhero as the model also for heroism, which I think is a very important point that you all make and that your authors are also sort of working around. Um, so that becomes the default. Um, and so everything else is anomalous or deviation, Um, and I thought that was also interesting so that it, it doesn't have to be like, what are the women doing? It's actually, what are the men doing and why are we paying attention to it? Um, and so, uh, the first section talks about the construction of toxic masculinity. The second section talks about the monstrous other, um, and those who don't necessarily fit this hegemonic masculine mold. Um, and then of course the third section is, um, alternative superheroes and superheroics. Um, so I wanted to ask you just to take us through how this became the organizing structure for the book, um, obviously based on some of the chapter contributions, um, but how they started to work together thematically for the two of you as editors.
2: So um, we had a collection of papers from the conference and we were kind of playing around with them um, Um, and figuring out where they were going to go. Um, And then we also contacted people who had presented at the previous conference um, to kind of round out the book, to give it a really full perspective. And the initial title of the book was Toxic Gender. um, And it was going to have at least three more chapters than it ended up having. And then as is very common when you go through an edited volume, because it takes such a long time, there's so much coordination, you sometimes lose people, and then you lose one or two chapters and you realize, well, because we're having to re kind of conceptualize the book, another chapter maybe doesn't belong anymore. It should find a different home. Um, so we had some dropouts as well. Um, and I think it ironically enough really gave us the opportunity to focus the book so much more strongly because we moved from toxic gender to toxic masculinity and it kind of gave us a, a, a much more clear lens. Um, to look through. and then um, the, the the thematic consolidation of where each chapter should go kind of came very naturally um, when moving stuff around because we, we ended up having very clearly a set of you know chapters on masculinity and then kind of maybe the response of other uh, figures to masculinity. And then two chapters that were a little spicy and a little different. Um, And we were thinking, oh, what what are we going to do with them? And they ended up in um, the last section, um, Strategies of of Resistance, because they're really about rethinking um, some of these issues that we've talked about in previous chapters and reconceptualizing where we can go with these things. Um, So, yeah, I think that's that's kind of how it went. It it was quite natural, I think, Dan.
3: Yeah, I I think, you know, (laughs) Esther worked incredibly hard Um, as an editor, I think I I was there very much for emotional support and and creativity, um, and that was it really. But I I think in terms of the structure, it, it was it just fell into place. And actually, if you look at the book, it is remarkable really because it's what's the problem, what are some of the impacts, what are the potential better futures or glimmers of hope Shall shall we say, uh, in, in terms of what comes next and what potentially could we do as well? Um, and I think I, I've really distilled that into an extremely simple uh, formula. But the, the reality is, is that's how the structure of the book works. Um, I don't think we set out to have it necessarily. Is that when we go back to that conference in 2016, um, it. It very much just grew into that structure so yeah
2: yeah over time because it was like a period of two years where we weren't quite sure how how because the project was taking shape very slowly um and we weren't quite sure which publisher it was going to go to what format it was going to have because I think we initially had like a part one and a part two structure as well because there were various ones that we played around with but then yeah we lost a few people and then as in the reshuffling. This, this structure kind of very naturally just sort of presented itself almost. Um, well, after some panicked messages, Facebook messages to Dan, I was like, oh, no, we've lost this author. What are we going to do uh, sort of thing? But, um, yeah, it, it did kind of very naturally present itself that way.
1: Can you talk about the first section? We'll start with the first section. The particular heroes that are discussed in the construction of toxic masculinity um, and, and how the authors essentially um, interrogate this concept that we see so often in the superhero texts.
2: I mean, Dan, you have the first chapter of that section. <laughs> and Do you want to... <laughs> I'm throwing uh, you under the bus here. I'm sorry.
3: <laughs> so shall I cover my section? Yeah, go uh, on. I think, to be fair, um, if you look at the first section... Um, when you look at the construction of hyper-masculinity, certainly for me it was... So the, the tether of my chapter is Wolverine. Um, it's not a surprising tether. It's not a surprising framework because all you need to do is look at Hugh Jackman's physical transformation from 1999 to... I mean, he's probably still completely jacked now. Um, but very much in my chapter, bookmarked by Logan um until we see him again maybe i don't know Do you think they'll recast him uh it, it's difficult to say but i think i think for me you have you have some big characters uh in the comic book world not just wolverine but batman and superman you see where they've gone as representations certainly on screen uh and they really do embody that hypermasculine trait of being, you know, just so hard-bodied and so massive and so in your face in terms of this. You know, when you see Batman growling at, at Superman in the rain, um, what message does does that give? So I think that the first part is very much fundamentally unpacking the narrative that's been thrown at, at audiences over and over and over again. It's not just the films, it's in the TV shows as well. So um, part of the first uh, section refers to, uh, I believe it's Arrow, uh, the, the, the TV show. Um, and is it Steve Mel who, who plays the character? Um, he He very much documents all of his injuries and his workouts on Twitter. And it's all, you know, I mean, it's clearly gold dust for the fan base, but is very much servicing uh, an idea that he is his character, and his character is super, super masculine, hyper masculine, um, and that's a very interesting uh, element. But yeah, I, I think you've got these almost tentpole, the the big characters in the main. Um, main universe is really, because I, I suppose you'd have X-Men separate from the MCU at present, um, they're all pretty hyper-masculine. Um, and so for us, it was like addressing who the most in-your-face superheroes were and what they tell us about masculinity. So, yeah, for me, that, that first chapter is very much drawing a line under the problem
1: Um, and the second, the second section, which again gets into this sort of contrast a bit um, with the sort of hyper or toxic masculinity, um, is the idea of of monstrous other um, or monstrous femininity um, that also comes up, uh, and and it sort of gets to some of the heroes or superheroes that don't necessarily fit under that umbrella. Um, can you talk a little bit about these, quote, deviations?
2: Yeah, so I think it's kind of um, like, so uh, Dan mentioned how Steve Mell like, plays up his character and his character is his, and that's gold dusting for the fans. And that is that really is, like, such an interesting point. And we talk about it a little throughout that first chapter, how the performance of masculinity is not only a requirement of the superhero, but it's also, like, fan service almost – um, so, like, the, the more masculine, the more badass the superhero is, the more pleased the fans will be. Oh, look at Batman, he's so cool. I wish I could beat up poor all, all people in my spare time and not go to jail, um, that kind of thing, right? And so if masculinity is the fan service, what then do non-traditional masculine characters or what do non-male characters have to do to provide the fan service? And what does that mean for them as characters? Um, and that's kind of where where um, the second part kind of really engages um, with it. So you have my chapter, The Monstrous and Batwoman, um, where I talk about the monstrous femininity that our main female lead takes on. And she very much performs that monstrosity almost consciously um, as a way to combat her, her villains. Um, and again, what that means for what is possible for that character because the performance of a hyper-masculinity is almost a limitation that is imposed by the character herself. Um, so it, it's that whole kind of question of if, if hyper-masculinity is necessary to the performance, where can these other characters go? What What is left for them? Um, and so I think you have Batwoman who kind of tries to, both play and combat that hyper-masculinity, both perform it and, and, and fight it at the same time. And then you have um, Drew Murphy's chapter on the X-Men and queer identities and Craig Haslop's character on, on Torchwood. And it's kind of the almost the rejection of hyper-masculinity, the rejection of hyper-masculinity, what does that mean then for male characters? Where can they go? And the exploration of what that means for storylines. So I think you kind of have in that first section, as as Dan said, the setting up of the problem, and then kind of in the second section, how that problem cascades down in a way to other characters, um, and what that means.
1: And and the third section is about alternative superheroes, and again, these are not necessarily the the superheroes you thought that they were, um, and and so. It's an interesting conclusionary section because it does take on this this sort of issue of like what is the model for heroism that has been so steeped in masculinity um, and how do we potentially conceptualize it differently? Um, yeah. Can you talk a little bit about those particular heroes that maybe take us in different directions? Uh,
2: yeah, so I think... Um uh yeah it 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 kind of really is about envisioning alternatives and thinking about a different way to play with gender um specifically richard's uh, richard reynolds chapter kind of really talks about that and how f- from his analysis emma frost really plays with her own gender mm-hmm. with the gender expectations yeah. that the people have around her and kind of the weaponization of that, how she weaponizes other people's expectations of her based on who she is as a woman, based on the specific feminine wear, yeah, clothes that she wears, on a very specific feminine appearance that she presents, and then kind of plays with those assumptions um, and weaponizes them for her own gain. And through that establishes a very assertive, uh, assertive personality, very much in control of her own destiny, Um, in a way that's not very common Um, and so it kind of really um, it pushes towards this idea of if we can if we can have characters if we can have comic books or super or, or tv series or whatever that consciously play with gender what can that do for us as the audience watching that how can we become conscious of this gender performance what can we take away from this instead of, you know, like like Dan has said before, like the, the worry of the mindless consumption. If we have very self-conscious media, very gender performance conscious media, what can that do for us?
3: Yeah, and I, I think for me, I was extremely pleased with those two chapters because if you look at the source material, you could look at them through a prism of masculinity that views it in a completely different way. Um, and I think... That's interesting because it's a hopeful interpretation of, of, of the source information, that empowerment message with um, Emma Frost, and then looking at the boundaries of toxic masculinity in the Harry Potter series um, and, and then addressing what what you could view as little kernels of hope within that because I think that, that to me, becomes a very interesting narrative. We aren't going to, overnight oh, look, toxic masculinity has gone, hegemonic masculinity has gone, it, it's all disappeared, um, we, we will have to come to terms with it and deal with it. And I think those two chapters really do show us actually there are already parts there. You can look, um, but we need to do more and we need to see more.
1: I wanted to ask you, and this is what I often ask of authors who have, Um, edited volumes um, where, you know, you all talked about the fact that you heard the papers in one form or another at the conference in in Oxford. Um, So you sort of had some sense of what your authors were going to write about. But I often like to ask editors, what was most surprising in terms of the research that you received as you were getting the drafts of the chapters in and starting to assemble the book? Um, so, Dan, if you would like to start by telling, telling the audience and, and us what was most surprising and what you, what you sort of were intrigued by when you read some of the chapters as they were coming in.
3: Yeah, sure. Um, I, I think for me, the, the, one, the one chapter that, that took me back in, in that sense was uh, Karen Segrew's chapter on Dumbledore. Um I just, I suppose for me, it was not necessarily an academic shock, more a personal shock, because I think having, you know, I wasn't a kid when Harry Potter came out, but, you know, the, the cultural zeitgeist of of what it was, um, it, it addressed layers of the character and the impact of the character and, and how masculinity impacts um, the, the narrative and all the different characters. In such a wonderfully nuanced way, um, it it really did surprise me because I think going back to what we were saying about sort of absorption, I think I myself was was guilty of sort of absorbing that narrative and that story without maybe thinking uh, about sort of some of the narrative strands and the healthiness and toxic masculinity of of what was going on in those circumstances. Some some areas are very obvious, aren't they? But but others were far more nuanced. So I think for me, Karen's chapter, it it was fascinating for me to interrogate my own uh, absorption uh, of of those ideals uh, and and ideologies. Uh, And what I will say is about Karen's chapter as well is my word in the drafting process, she, she battered it out of the park. It went from first draft to final draft. It was an unbelievable transformation um, and, and, yeah, it's, it's it's wonderful writing. And, yeah, absolutely, I think, pick up the book, of course, but also Scholars of, of Harry Potter, you definitely need to check that out.
2: And Esther? Um, so for me, actually, one of the um, – not surprising in terms of content matter because, like, obviously I'd, I'd read the paper. Um, but in, in terms of, like, what is it for me in my research, one of the most impactful, certainly – um, was actually Dan's chapter, the simulacrum of hypermasculinity in comic book cinema. Um, I think it's one of the reasons. One of the reasons is because it deals with the concept of the simulacrum and ties it to the superhero in such like in what seems to me now a very straightforward way. But again, I was doing my I was doing my PhD at the time. I was in process of doing it, and I'd kind of dismissed simulacrum and that kind of theory is very like oh that's highfalutin stuff I don't do that I do what I do what's in the text I get messy in the text that's what I do do you know very that kind of insufferable oh that's not for me um and Dan kind of really like it was like a light going off inside my skull like oh my god yes of course actually and it kind of really helped me think about you know what we think of as the realness and how that's linked to actors and like the plasticity of the body which is something I talk about in my in in, in my book, what became my PhD a lot actually actually as well. Um, And then like how that takes us away from what is real, what is fake, what is the very thin line between those two things and um, what's on the paper of the comic book, what's on the screen and kind of really made me think about those relationships in a completely new way. So for me, that was like very impactful to have had that um, chapter. Um, and I think actually, like, if you don't mind me, I would just like to do a shout out to James C. Taylor's um, chapter as well, um, which is on Arrow and the television format, um, because it, it it kind of really links comics and television and the weekly format and how it kind of requires you to go back to a status quo almost every week. And yeah, that's also like a really interesting comic uh, concept because in comics, obviously. Huge changes like the death of Superman always get rewound, and mm-hmm. how that's kind of translated to television. So television is almost the ideal um, successor to the comic book format of this, for the superhero. So yeah, those two chapters for sure are kind of like oh my god, yeah, to me.
1: Um, and and in terms of the television format, it's interesting because the the both the DC and the MCU have made the most impact through the films, which are, you know, bites to, to sometimes three hour bites, but um, they're not the serialization. And we know obviously that some of the television shows have had um, sizable audiences, but they're not, they're not comparative to the film audiences. And the same with the comic books, the comic books are not read nearly as much as the films are consumed. Um, and, can you talk a little bit about the, these different formats, and and what the audience
2: is thinking about in that regard? So I think like a very key thing to understand is that television has historically been aimed at women. It's considered a female format, the housewife who watches telly while she's doing housework. That that's like the foundation of the serialized television net- network whereas blockbusters and comics very much presume, presume that their audiences are dominantly male. So I think it's like you're very much playing around with the male and the female gaze in those formats. Um, and I think James talks about this in his chapter as well, that especially Arrow and the CW network almost consciously play around and harness that female gaze to then play up the hyper-masculinity of their characters. Um, whereas the male gaze uh, is more present in the blockbusters. And uh, so that there's there's the difference between the supposed lust of the female audience that is harnessed for the television show, versus the male gaze, the admiration, the, the need for the badassery, as it were, um, that's presumed for uh, of the male audience in the comic book and the, the blockbuster.
3: Yeah, and actually, the the iterations of Superman are quite interesting. That if you go to Tom Welling in, in Smallville, uh, certainly at the start where he's uh, you know chained up in a Christ-like figure to a scarecrow, naturally with a t-shirt off and, and muscles rippling, um, I'd say that falls into that category. Versus obviously Henry Cavill and the Snyder interpretation of of the character, um, you can get a clearer night and day version
2: of, of, of the both of them and, and versus Dean Kane from Lois and Superman as well yes that and Superman the very first series that kind of highlighted Clark Kent as the real identity the person um not the muscle uh, and, and how you know the fact that he was charming well educated um that was kind of oh the female ideal versus then you know Henry Cavill where we mostly just see him beating stuff up
1: <laughs> there is a lot of beating up that goes on in the superheroes. <laughs> that is true.
2: I mean, to be fair, I wouldn't, I don't mind it. And I actually like, obviously, I, I do want the actors to be healthy and um, have decent working conditions. And like some of the things that they are put through for the films are absolutely not okay. Um, but every single time I think about hypermasculinity and the physicality of it, and I'm like, oh, yeah, it is really bad. Um, I kind of wish that we that we could also have, um, like from from a cultural point of view, a less serious approach to it. So in the sense that, like, if we could be playful with it, it wouldn't be so horrible because that's the thing. That's what makes it kind of wrong when you look at it, that it is so serious. So I always have to think about Gail Simone, who's a comic book writer, and um, she she writes Red Sonja or she wrote Red Sonia. She's done loads of different things. Um, but someone asked her about it because most, a lot of characters in her books are always really, really buff, including some of the women. And she straight out said, because I like the beefcake. Like I don't, there's nothing deeper to it. I like the beefcake. And I'm like, yes, if we could be playful with it like that, just this kind of, yeah, it just, it has to be fun and interesting and visually appealing to look at. But that doesn't... And and that can be beefcake, but it can also be other fun and interesting things. So she's got a character in one of the books called... um, In The Secret Six, the character called Ragdoll. And he's had several surgeries done to himself. And he can contort himself into all kinds of shape. And they very often use that for various... Both horrifying, terrifying, and comedic effect. And that kind of... If we could be playful about the visual necessity of superheroes, then maybe we wouldn't be kind of get mired into this hypermasculinity.
3: No, exactly. And I think I think that's a really interesting and important point. Part of what makes the hypermasculinity toxic is it is indelibly out of reach from almost every man on the planet. <laughs> And yet, it's not so far away <laughs> that that you can't, you know, crucify yourself for having to watch it and go. I should look like that. I should go to the gym more. I should. Do you know what I mean? Uh, y- you end up in a scenario where it's even if you got to ninety percent, they're showing you one hundred and ten percent. And so that playfulness is, is really vital, I think. Uh, and one of the things that's overlooked is that playfulness. Is there in, in the comic books, even in the hyper masculine representations? You know, if you look at, oh, what was the name of the uh, characters at Icon from, from the 90s? You remember? Absolutely huge guy. He was like like a truck, basically, in the background. Absolutely massive. Um, and, and you have that, a form of playfulness, even within the hyper masculinity, in some forms in comic books. Whereas, obviously, what is interesting in the films and the TV shows to a certain extent, it's either attained through really extreme means physically uh, in terms of diet, exercise and, and things like that, or it's masqueraded and presented as being real. So, you know, there's, there's several stories of actors, you know, getting the pump between scenes because they've got their top off on the next scene. So what you're seeing is, is Literally impossible, uh, unless you know you're gonna be working out every 15 minutes through the day. Um, so for me, yeah, that, that playfulness is absolutely key, and I hope we get to see more of that, uh, in the next five to ten years.
1: So, what are the two of you working on either separately or together these days?
2: Uh, so I have previously on the podcast, i said that I've left academia, and I have, um, because the the industry is not great and I'm kind of going back and forth on whether or not I want to do projects on my own time on the side um but I might I might have something I might have something maybe with Dan actually if if I I, I might message you in the coming few days and be like like I, I might have something for you to look at
3: Good, good. Yeah, that, that sounds very good. Um, interestingly, to to pick up on Esther's point about academia, I'm I'm a bit further along the non-academia academic journey, uh, of which there are many people, you know, across the world, um, but as, especially in the UK, um, it, it's hard graft. I think doing a PhD, uh, and there, there's a lot, there's a very thin wedge. Let's put it that way, to to be able to get into academia and then stay there um, but certainly for me you know when we did the conference in 2016 uh, I, I had already done the PhD I finished mine in 2011 I was already out of academia so that conference for me was almost like a triumphant return because uh, <laughs> I'd applied for a job at I think it was the University of Leicester and I can't remember the name of the academic it was lovely Good job woman. you got out job you <laughs> didn't take
2: that no I'm serious like you dodged a bullet
3: (laughs) (laughs) well yeah I've seen what's happening on Twitter at the moment but it's quite interesting because she she turned around and said because I said I'd like to apply but I don't really have enough experience on my CV uh, and enough research and also I'm working at the moment so it's really hard to fit in the research and she just responded saying tough it's that some of the best academics I know have actually gone out of academia and taken the long game of literally just doing what they want to do and, and applying themselves. So I won't lie, it took me a year or two to swallow that bitter pill. Um, but then in 2016, I was like, yeah, okay, I, I can get back on this horse and and do it in my own terms. And lo and behold, I met Esther and, and that's where the, the book came from. Um, so, wow, that was a meandering tale, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's like a, a real riposte to academia as it stands. But the point I was trying to make was, was that hopefully Esther's going on that journey now where it's actually engaging with academia uh, on, on your own terms, doing what you want to do and not sweating that career journey. Um, for me personally, uh, at the moment, I am working on a chapter on... Hypermasculinity in the boys I don't know if you've seen the the tv show um so yeah that's going to be a very interesting one um I mean so... yeah the
2: second I saw that I was like oh Dan could have loads to say about this one <laughs> I was looking at it like yeah
3: T- turning it into one paper and one chapter I think will be the challenge I did seriously consider writing a whole book on it but um yeah I don't have that's... enough hours in the day
2: <laughs> that's always the rub isn't it where do I cut what what do I need how do I really knuckle it down to its bare components
3: yeah and that's the interesting thing about masculinity at the moment is you know that there's so much source material to assess and analyze and look at the impact of what's happening as well it's it's yeah
1: yeah it's the the discussions or the the texts are everywhere Absolutely,
3: exactly, and then you know adaptations of the texts as well, and where they differ. For example, is a fascinating avenue to look at. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, if you do have another book coming out, please let me know. I'd love to talk to you both again. Um, I've been joined by editors of Toxic Masculinity, Mapping the Monstrous in Our Heroes, um, Esther Dadao and Daniel Connell. Um, this was published in 2020 by the University Press of Mississippi, and I assume one can purchase it at the
2: University of Mississippi website. Um, yes, I think it's also available via the Waterstones website, okay. uh, which is a book distributor in the UK. That, that
1: is an- another place to find books, particularly in the UK. Um, and I would like to thank Esther and Dan for joining me today. Well, thank you for having yes, us. Thank you
3: very much. My pleasure.